What are the hottest Christmas gifts for 2021? Well, in case you were wondering, I'm about to tell you. Uh, according to Rolling Stone magazine for adults, the hottest Christmas gifts for 2021 are a, uh, well, the, the uh, AirPods for your iPhone, the new Apple AirPods, a new generation of those, um, a particular kind of washable Wool blanket is high on the list, uh, according to Rolling Stone, as well as a certain brand of reflective running jacket. Those are the top three. They may not be on your three, but that's on their three. Uh, for kids, in case you're wondering, i got to read this. According to CNET, these are the top three in terms of the hot Christmas gifts for 2021. The VTech Kitty Zoom print cam, the Bluey Ultimate Caravan Adventure playset, and a Magic Mixies Color Cauldron. I'm sure they're all great, um, assuming batteries are on hand. I'm sure they're all great. And I'm not picking on any of those gifts, whether the gifts on the adult list or the kid list. It's all fine. It's all good. Um, but experience and a little bit of reflection, for those of us who are a little bit older, will tell us that those things, no matter how fine, no matter how great, no matter whether batteries are or are not included, those things actually do not touch our deepest longings. Those things do not actually get at our greatest, most profound needs. And in fact, and again, please don't hear me saying what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't give gifts at Christmas. That's not what I'm saying. At the same time, that same wonderful, you just heard me say wonderful, wonderful tradition at times can be misused and misapplied such that that very act of gift giving and receiving can mask and distract us from what our real needs are, our greatest, deepest desires are. Our greatest need and our greatest, deepest desire, even if we can't articulate it or are even aware of it, is spiritual renewal. Spiritual renewal. And for that, we cannot look to Santa's sleigh. We have only one place to look, and that is to Jesus. And the gift that he has come to bring us. Now, this Sunday and for the next several Sundays, we're in a little mini-series, this Advent series of, we're going to just call it, The Gifts That Jesus Brings. The Gifts That Jesus Brings. And the one we're leading off with here today is a big theological term that we're going to unpack as we go. And it's called justification. This is the lead-off, the first of the big gifts that Jesus has come to give us. Now, to take us into that, we're going to look at Romans chapter 1, just two verses, just two verses. Romans 1, verses 16 through 17. It's on the screen. If you want to follow along in your Bible, uh, we've got the, the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans verse, chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. This actually sets the tone for the entire letter that we know as the book of Romans. Hear now the word of God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, we thank you for this Advent season. We thank you for this time where we can pause in the lead up to the Christmas celebration and think and contemplate and meditate about the longing, the longing of your people Israel for those many centuries waiting for the Messiah to come. Waiting, waiting we ourselves in the ache and loneliness and brokenness of our lives and our hearts. And then waiting, longing, looking expectantly, hopefully, for your return. Advent is huge. And we are waiting and we are longing and we are looking. Oh, come, oh, come. We not only sing, but we pray. We ask this morning that you would grab hold of our minds and hearts and shape our lives Help us to see this great gift that you have given, what it is, why we need it, how it comes, how to live. Thank you for these few minutes with which we have to begin this day and begin this week. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Here's a simple truism. Uh, What we do is governed by what we want. Let me say it again. What we do is governed by what we want. It's always the case, or I'll just rephrase it, put it another way. Our needs and desires are overflows of our words and deeds. Or excuse me, our words and deeds are overflows. That's what I meant to say, sorry. Our words and deeds are overflow of our needs and desires. So what do we need? What do we desire? What do we want? At the horizontal level... I think it's safe to say, I don't, I'm not going to take a poll, but I, I'm almost, I'm quite certain we would all agree with this. One of our greatest needs, one of our greatest desires and wants is acceptance, to, to, to belong, relationship, one with, one, one with another. Whether you are the most expressive extrovert or the quietest introvert, That's what we all long for, acceptance and belonging. And and we never, you see it throughout the course of of every one of our biographies. You're like, well, how do you know? Just stay with me. As children, it shows itself in the things that we want to wear, the things we want to watch, the things that we want to play, even the things that we want to eat are governed by what's everybody else doing? What are they doing? That's what I want to do. As you grow a little bit older into your adolescent years, so much of the music that you want to hear, the image that you want to cultivate, the people, the the crowd that you want to run with, and the things that you will do with that crowd is governed by this desire, even if you actually don't like any of that stuff. You will still do it, or at least be strongly tempted towards it, because of a desire to be accepted and to belong and then we never outgrow it. doesn't matter how many gray hairs you have. It still stays with us. The car you buy, the career you pursue, 
your parenting styles and your political stances are all still oftentimes very much shaped by a desire to belong and to be accepted by the people around you. Even if you don't want to admit it, it's still true. It's still true. We were made for connection, one with another, hardwired. If you've been here more than a month, you've probably heard me say, we are made in the image of a triune God, the eternal relation, relating God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We are hardwired, made in His image, therein made for relationship. Okay, so that's a good desire. Here's where it gets really interesting. That good desire for belonging, for acceptance, is also, is also an echo of something even deeper, and that is to be accepted, and to belong with our very creator. With our very creator. We long for that. We're made for that. Okay, what, what does that have to do with the text? I'm so glad you asked. Let's go back and look at Romans 1. This is this, what Paul is getting at here is we, we are still trying to get back to the garden. We are seeking God with all we are, whether we know it or not. Do we know it or, or not? Let's look at, the, again, the text, Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul is telling us about a gift here that no wrapping paper can possibly contain. It's too big. It's too profound. What is that gift? The gift is simply this. The Lord has opened the way. He has opened the way for us to be accepted by him. We have but to lay hold of it. He has opened the way for us to be accepted, for us to belong with him. We have but to lay hold of it. That's what we've been singing about so far this morning. That's what we've been reading about so far this morning. We're just going a little bit further, talking about it at length here in Rome, out of Romans 1. Um, how do we see? How, what, what do we learn about this gift in the text? Three things. First, we see something as to why it is needed. Why it is needed. Secondly, what it involves. And then thirdly, how it becomes ours. Okay? So, why, what, and how. Why, what, and how. Those three things. Let's look at them in turn. Let's look at the text again. Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now, if you know anything about Paul's biography, you know that his, th this is an encapsulation of his whole ministry, of his message, and you may know something also that this is the message, this is the gospel that transformed his life. This is Paul right here in these two verses. That said, wh what, why? Why do we have to say, why would it be the case uh, why is it true to say that it is so essential? Why is it so necessary? He speaks here of salvation. Why, what is that about? Well, we have to, let's break that down. There, there's a problem the scriptures speak of, and he's alluding to it here, and he goes on to speak into that quite explicitly in chapters uh, 1, 2, and 3. God, the, the, infinite, the infinite personal God, is utterly holy. He is, his character is the standard of all perfections. And that is not something that he can just switch on and off. He is forever 
in the perfection of his holiness. This is who he is. And to stand in his presence means one has therein to be holy. Well, okay, but here's the problem. We're not. We are not. We are quick to, as the prophets say, go our own way, rebellious, utterly resistant to his will, to his ways, to his commands, to his counsels. Those of you who were with us about a year and a half ago and we did a course through Relational Wisdom 360, I'm just going to steal right out of the circle. Okay? So, before God, he calls us to remember him and be faithful to him, and yet we are constantly forgetting and fickle. Okay? With others... He calls us to be compassionate and to serve, and yet we are continually insensitive and manipulative. Regarding ourselves, he calls us to be humble and disciplined, and yet we are, every one of us, every one of us, continually proud and indulgent. Every one of us. This is not just a problem. This is the problem of humanity. Since the fall, it's created a rift, an utter rift beyond our fathoming, a chasm beyond our, our, our probing. We are an utterly unable to fix this. The Scriptures, Paul in particular, tells us we are dead and enslaved in sin. And as though that wasn't bad enough, we're unwilling to even, we're not just unable to fix it, we are un unwilling to even try. So even if we could, we wouldn't. We are unwilling to bow before our creator, to bow before our provider and the sustainer, to bow before him as savior. Hence this horrific eternal rift. And the result, the result ever since the fall this world has lived, mankind has lived in a state of disintegration, disintegrating, disintegration, brokenness, shatteredness, a wreckage that we are all living with and in now, like ships cut adrift just afloat, the, uh, the rudder is broken, the mast is snapped, the sails are in tattered, we are just adrift and it shows itself in so many ways in our relationships with one another. Can I get an amen on the holiday season? It shows itself so powerfully, so profoundly in the, the wreckage, not just within us, but between us in this state in which we live. And it's not just now, but again, we back to this God who is holy, there is a judgment to come. The judge of all the earth cannot but do right, which means upon, on that day, on that day when we stand before him, if we stand alone before him, well, no sin can stand in his presence. So it's not just the state of, of, of today, of the, or this wreckage now, but a judgment to come in which he will cast us forever away from his presence and we need his presence in order to live. That, my friends, is why this gift is needed. That is why this gift is needed. The message of Christmas itself 
tells us something of this. Think of the trouble heaven has gone to to save a people for himself. The incarnation tells us something of the, of the, just of the effort, I can put it that way, the effort that is required that we would be saved. And our songs speak of this. We, we, the last one we sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and, rap, and, and rescue what? Captive, ransom, captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice! Rejoice, Emmanuel, which means God with us, shall come to you, O Israel. That, the, the song is alluding to an historic and real uh, exile and captivity. But horrific as that was, was meant to point towards something even worse. Something far darker and far more dire. Well, okay, what do we do with this? What do we do with this dark, terrible message. Well, we have to say, for nothing else, let's not deny it. Let's not suppress it. Let's, let's face it. Let's not try and play down, just to make ourselves feel better, God's holiness and our sinfulness, or to play up our ability to meet His standards. That, that is to dress the wound lightly. Actually, not at all. And to leave us in a perpetual state of trying to cover things up and a deep sense of things being amiss. He has opened the way for us to be accepted by him. We need to lay hold of that. That takes us to the second point. The second point. What does this involve? What are we talking about? What is this gift? Well, this is where we, Paul goes a little further in verse 17. He's set it up in verse 16. For in it, that is the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is Revealed. Now, what does that mean? Well, uh, you could put it this way. It is God's just justification of the unjust. Or you could say it is his righteous way of making the unrighteous righteous. But let's just unpack that. Let's go down further into the details here. It hinges all justification, the righteousness of God being revealed, hinges all on the finished work of Christ. Utterly and completely hinges on the finished work of Christ in which two things happen. Our sin is pardoned and we are given a new record. A new record. It's not that in the pardoning of our sin that he ignores it or pretends that it's not there, but it's rather that he does not hold it against us. How? If he's just, how? Because Jesus, as the old song goes, has paid it all. The debt has been completely paid by Jesus. There's no debt left to be paid by us. Pardon for sin. Pardon for sin. But that's not the only thing, because that's not the only thing we need. So he does not stop there with just the pardon for our sin. We are also declared righteous. He not only died for us, he lived for us, and so his righteousness, his record is credited to us and it's been alluded to more than once already this morning, such that God looks at us, and when he sees us, he sees Jesus' perfect record, and it's such that it's as though we ourselves had lived a perfect life. Because, and that's how God 
The holy judge sees us because of the next thing, this imputation of the righteousness of Jesus to us. We are, it's reckoned, it's accounted, it's a courtroom setting. The judge says, I am clearing you of your guilt and attributing all that this one has done to you. And in that, you are eternally secure. Nothing can undo what has been done. The righteousness of God has been revealed. And that's the gift. Justification. Let me put it this way. The, the, the uh, image, the vision of Zechariah 3 earlier was perfect. Let me give you one that captures all of that, but in everyday terms, okay? So let's pretend for a minute that you are in need of a great sum of money, and you don't have this great sum of money, and in fact, it's worse, you are also in great debt, okay? But along comes this friend of yours, and this friend has been working for a long, working and laboring for a long time to accumulate this massive account. And the friend, knowing of your need, knowing of your debt, comes to you and pays it all off. Is your problem completely fixed? No, because you still needed that great sum of money. Now, your debt has been paid, but you don't have the sum. And so then your friend goes another step and puts your name into his account such that all that he has is now yours. He's done it twice over for you. He's done it twice over for you. Christian, you are no pauper. You are no beggar. Jesus paid the debt and added your name to his account. He has taken on all of our sin and given us all of his righteousness. Can I, let's just make this practical. Where, we, where might we go with this over the coming weeks? The holiday season. It's great. Love it. Dressed for it. It can also be a stressful time of do and do and do and wonder if you've ever done enough. Can anybody relate to something of that? Like so many projects to take care of, so many people to see, so many things to, to, uh, to attend to. The, the most wonderful time of the year at times can be the most wearisome time of the year. And you judge yourself by what you think others are thinking of you and what you think of you and all these arbitrary measures of who you are. Do you know, friend, do you know the deepest rest that you can possibly have is in Jesus? Do you know what it is that he has done for you? Do you know, Christian, do you know how he sees you right now in this moment as you are sitting in those seats or watching online? Do you know how he sees you, particularly, individually, specifically, you at this moment? Pardoned and accepted with the righteous robes of Jesus draped upon your shoulders. Do you know that of yourself? 
Again, he has opened the way. He has opened the way that we might be accepted by him. We have but to lay hold of it. And that takes us to the third point, how. We've talked about the why. We've talked about the what. But can we need to address the how. How does this become ours? Well, verse 17, let's read that again. For in it, it being the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It is by faith alone, by faith alone. Now, what does this mean? Uh, at Christmas time, you oftentimes, I've seen it already on shirts. Just believe. That is not, that is not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about the power of positivity. We're not talking about just have faith. Faith, biblically speaking, is to receive and rest on Jesus alone. It is to look to Him, to lean upon Him, to turn to Him, to trust in what He has done and only what He has done for you. Well, how do works come into play here? Really good question. We are not saved by our good works or by our faith plus good works. We are saved through faith in Christ alone. We are saved through faith in Christ alone. That is the, the means. That is the instrumentality. This faith, we are saved by faith alone, not a faith that is alone, a faith that does work. It's a living faith. It's a faith that breathes, a faith that bears fruit. And that faith, through such faith, we are saved in Christ alone. When is it at work? When do you see it? Is it just at the beginning? Is it just at the point of our conversion when we come to Christ and we give ourselves to Him, whether you know the day or the time or the setting or not, doesn't matter. But is it just at the beginning? No, no. Paul is quite clear on this point just in these two verses. Uh, verse, 17, verse 17, the beginning of the first half, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now that's a strange uh, expression. Here's what it means. Only through faith. Faith is the, capital T-H-E, the vital means, the necessary instrumental way that we are saved and no, by nothing else. So he's piling up the words there, in essence, you could say. But he goes on to say, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He's hearkening back to one of the Old Testament prophets, Habakkuk, showing us that this is not a novel idea, but he's showing, and, and also showing us here that the life of faith, the Christian life, what it means to follow Jesus, to be a disciple, is a life of continual dependence, daily, throughout the day, in everything, upon our dependence upon the grace of God in Christ. There is nowhere or no when in which we can say, oh, I got this. Never, never, our life is in Jesus. Our life is in Jesus. The righteousness of God is ours through faith. 
some implications here, some applications here. So we can put it this way. We have no room or reason to fear because our works are not part of the equation. It's good to know. We also have, equally so, no room or reason to boast or be proud because our works are not part of the equation. You see, it doesn't have anything to do with our history or our heritage. It doesn't have anything to do with our color or our class. It doesn't have anything to do with our piety or our politics. It doesn't have anything to do with our successes or our strengths. It has nothing to do with anything outside of Jesus. That's where our security of standing is found. Only in Jesus. The solas of the Reformation, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we need to get very practical here at this point. Our disease divisions that we are seeing across this land and in the church find their roots with a failure to reckon with this. To the degree that we will find our identity or security in anything else other than Jesus, we will divide. We will divide and we are. And to the degree that you right now are thinking of someone else and the way they're causing divisions, you've just fallen into it. In this very moment. Our identity and security is in Christ and Christ alone. Alone. He has opened up the way for us to be accepted by him. That we must lay hold of. I mentioned the solas of the Reformation. Martin Luther. Martin Luther. Uh, his... Uh, his, his, his mantra, that's not really quite true, but his, his, the theme of the man's heart was justification by faith alone. He said that that was the axiom, that was the truism, the principle by which the church would either stand or fall. And he was right. He was right. This was so, in so many ways that at the very center, the heart of the Protestant Reformation that some at the time and the years since have said this was a battle for the gospel. And in many ways, that's true. That's true. But Luther didn't always grasp that. Let's go ahead and put that quote up on the screen. That's an, it's, it's a, I want to read you these words from Luther himself. Where he's reflecting back on his own life and his own struggles with these issues. And he's, he's actually talking about the very text that we're looking at here this morning. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, specifically verse 17. Now, I want to read this, and if, if you will follow along and note the shift that takes place, the change in his understanding and his, his life that takes place. There's four slides. The shift takes place between uh, slide two and three. 
okay? Meanwhile, I had already during that year, 1519, returned to interpret the Psalter anew. I had confidence in the fact that I was more skilled after I had lectured in the university on St. Paul's epistles to the Romans, to the Galatians, and the one to the Hebrews. I had indeed been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans. But up till then, it was not the cold blood about the heart, but a single word in chapter 117, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed that had stood in my way. For I hated that word, righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of all the teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they called it, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. Here's the shift. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Friends, the Reformation hinged on an exegetical discovery. You catch the shift that takes place in his heart when he begins to understand that the righteousness of God is not something you achieve, but something you receive. It is not something that we labor towards, but something we live out of. Because he's given it to us. It's ours in Christ. And as Luther grasped that in his mind, it matriculated its way down into his heart and just flipped his life upside down. When did it happen? When that year did it happen? I, I, I want to believe it was Advent, but we don't know that. But wouldn't it have been cool if it was? May the Lord open our eyes. May he open our eyes to see what it is he has provided for us. This great gift. Can we pray? Lord, we have no greater need. And it is reflected in so many ways. The longing that we have, seeking out so many other things, even one another, even one another. We have no greater need, and you have supplied no greater gift. We are so unworthy. And you are so merciful. In a way, we have to say it really couldn't be any easier. All we have is but to turn and trust and look and lean and receive and rest. In a way, it couldn't be any easier. But at the same time, it's just impossible. 
without you, Holy Spirit, working a recreation within our hearts. And every one of us in this room needs to hear this and reckon with it and embrace it in some way, if not for the first time, then anew. And would you be so gracious, O Lord Jesus, to grant us this gift this Advent. Amen.